Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 13. Every now and then you encounter certain ideas in ministry where you, you come up with a concept of ministry that could be done and you believe in that and you invest in it. And other times you meet people that you engage with and you believe in those people and you think whatever God's going to do with them, God's going to do with them. And, and I want you to know that me personally, I believe that uh, James Whitford is not only the kind of person I want to invest in, but what he's doing in this community and what he founded uh, with uh, Watered Gardens is worth doing. Would you help me express our appreciation to their ministry and what they're doing in this community? I've been asked by our uh, creative arts and uh, technology team to share with you that uh, beginning this morning, as we're currently in here, the, our services are going to be begun today, and you can get them next week if you so choose, to be live streamed on Facebook. I, I don't know what Facebook is, but trust me, it's out there. And you could, this, our services are going to be live streamed, the messages. So if you're traveling in a way and want to be a part of your community, understand what we're learning together, this is going to be made available to you, and uh, you can go on Facebook on our uh, link at Christ Church of Orinogo, and you can find that. And I appreciate them putting in the time and effort. And I don't know what half of that means, but I just shared it with you, right? All right, so here we go. Uh, John chapter 13, you might remember that last week, if you were with us, we had a uh, teaching through Luke's uh, usage of the Last Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Luke talked at length about the Passover connection and how the Lamb of God and how Jesus used the Passover meal to not only talk about what happened to the Israelites in Egypt, but to forecast that this new Passover he was bringing into play was taking us into our future. We're going to look at John's treatment of this particular night, but he's looking at it differently. Not in a contrary way, but he's highlighting something different, which in verse 1 he explains. Let's read it. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. John is explaining not only what he's telling us, but why he's telling us this. That Jesus has taught him through this night what he wanted, and that was the full extent of his love understood. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judah Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So they enter into this room that was not theirs. None of them owned this home. But you might remember that previous in the text that Jesus had told some of his disciples, hey, go to such and such a town, go into Jerusalem and find so-and-so. There'll be a colt tied outside the house. Go tell them that the master needs this room. Now, some scholars, I don't know where they derive this, but it's consistent enough that I believe there's some validity to it over time, that some believe this is John Mark's house. Now, who's John Mark? He actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's found in the book of Acts, having traveled with Paul and Barnabas. And some people even believe that you might remember in the night that Jesus is arrested in the garden, that they grabbed one of the young men, and it said he ran out of his clothing, and he ran out in his undergarment through the town, or through the garden back to Jerusalem. And many believe that was the same John Mark. The guy's got a great story. He also has a big room because they go to his parents' house and there's this room that's going to be used. We call it the upper room. Now, what would have happened if you would have come to my house for dinner in those days? That because you would walk to my house, there was no transportation, you would go through the streets. Now, the streets weren't asphalt or cement. 
they were gravel and they were dust and dirt, that when you came into the house, next to every person's door that welcomed guests would be a basin, a pitcher full of water, and some towels to clean feet. And when they come in the upper room that night, there's no one at the door stationed to clean their feet. And they all come in and they sit down at the table. And the question that seems to permeate the entire room of disciples is, how come there's no one here to wash my feet? The question they're not asking themselves is, why am I not washing everybody's feet? The first thought is, selfishly, how come someone's not taking care of me and my needs? And so you have this moment where they walk in, and we may think it's not that big of a difference. What does dirty feet matter? Well, it's completely different, because the way we eat, our feet are under the table. Now, first hour absolutely disagreed with me, and they're wrong. And second service supported my position, which meant they're right. But let me ask you, aren't feet nasty? Good. So if we sat down at my dinner table and all of a sudden I said, before we eat, after we've prayed for the meal, everybody take your shoes and socks off and stick your janky feet on the table and let's check each other's feet out, you wouldn't come back, would you? You'd do that. You wouldn't even do it. You would, no, that's gross. Well, the way they ate around a table, they didn't have the three and a half or four foot tables off the ground that we have. Their tables were normally 18 to 24 inches off the ground and they would have pillows around them and they would recline. Now, you may not be able to picture this. Picture me on a college football Saturday laying on my couch watching a football game and you get the image of how they ate, which meant their feet would have been exposed, not under the table, but outside the table. And as you laid on your right side or left side, someone's feet would be behind your head. Now, do we understand the need that feet needed cleaned? Dirty, filthy, smell like Fritos, you get it. I mean, you want that just taken care of. So there they Now I have you emotionally in the moment, too. I like this. So there they were sitting around the table, and all their feet were filthy, and everyone's going, it's awkward. Someone should have washed our feet. Verse 4. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, Jesus didn't ask the question, how come someone's not caring for me? Jesus saw a need and he got up and he took care of it. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, that may seem like a strange question. Like, obviously, he's got the apron on. He's got the pitcher and basin. He's got the towels. He's probably already wiped someone's feet. And Peter says, are you going to wash my feet? But you need to understand the context is the rabbis in Jesus' day taught Jews that they were, it was beneath them to wash another person's feet. So Peter asks a very loaded question here. Not only are you going to wash my feet, but are you, my Messiah, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Now we're going to notice something happens to Peter here repeatedly in this particular evening. Jesus just said to him, you don't understand, but you will later. And Peter's like, no, he couldn't hear it. He didn't understand what was going on. He tried to interject himself into it. He tried to better it. And Jesus says to him, no, no. And Peter says, no, then you won't wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Uh Uh-oh. Peter crossed that line again. And if you wonder where that line is, just look behind Peter, because that's where it always is. (laughs) Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew he was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. You see, John is parenthetically telling us what's going on in this moment, because in this moment, John doesn't get it, but later when he's telling us the story and he's recording what happened that night, he's like, oh, he meant that, and then that meant this, and then there was Judas, and 
And John's giving us the narrative to help us in. But they would, have, they would have cleaned up for the Passover. They would have not just like run 12 miles and showed up for dinner. They would have dressed up for the occasion. They would have prepared themselves. The Passover was not a minor deal. It was their Easter. So they would have dressed up differently. And Peter goes all Peter on Jesus. And he's like, you won't touch my feet. And Jesus said, I need to touch your feet or you're not going to make it. Then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, relax. <laughs> just Relax. Your feet are filthy. You prepared yourself for this night. In other words, he's teaching us something if we pay attention. It has little to do with the feet, and it has more to do with what needs cleansed. And Jesus said, let me take care of what I can take care of that you can't. Verse 12, do you understand what I have done for you? He asks all the disciples, and the answer is safely no. They don't. And instead of making fun of them, we need to understand that they didn't. They could not until the resurrection understand what had taken place. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, and that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Verse 15 is crucial. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. So the moral of the story is, if you don't wash someone's feet today, you don't love Jesus. No. Church, it's a metaphor. It wasn't about how many feet you wash in a day that shows the love for Jesus. He said, if you'll notice, and then he's going to take them deeper and show them what he's actually talking about. The metaphor is taking care of the feet. It's a gross thing. It's a dirty thing. Nobody wanted to do it. When they walked in and saw the basin, the pitcher, and the towels, they knew someone should wash the feet, but their first thought was, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to humble myself. When, when, it's kind of interesting when Peter says... Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? Do you think he would have said the same thing if John would have tried to wash him or Thaddeus or Judas? It would have never entered his mind. He would have been like, yeah, John, you ought to wash my feet. And Jesus in this moment uses this metaphor of foot washing to say, I want you to notice what i am done for you and what I'm going to do for you. You don't understand it tonight, but you will going forward. We do sometimes ceremonial, like there, there's moments that are significant moments. I'm not making fun of it, but when we wash people's feet. But in our culture where we have $5 socks on and $150 shoes on, it's token, isn't it? But it's actually humbling yourself and serving the need that needs served is what Jesus would do that night. It didn't have to do with their feet. It had to do with their souls. He would go as the spotless lamb and give his life, and he would humble himself and put away his pride and put away his dignity, and he would do all that for us. And Jesus said, you should do what I do. Put away your pride. Humble yourself. Put away this sense of dignity and actually do what needs done because you love. See, we're not called to random acts of kindness. We have to be really careful about this. I'm not saying don't be kind, but we're not called to this random acts of kindness because what happens is if you go do a nice thing for a person and they don't understand why you did it, they just think you're a nice person. And at the end of the game, being known as a nice person is not a win. Well, I'm considerate, I'm kind, I'm generous. Yeah, those are all beautiful things. And actually, I believe they're part of the fruit of the Spirit. But the ultimate reason we go out and do the things we do is so that they know the heart of Jesus for them. Not just how good a person we are and how noble we are. So Jesus didn't call us to random acts of kindness. He called us to intentional acts of kindness where we serve and we love. You see, the golden rule says do unto others. Let me reinterpret it. You owe others what you would like them to do for you. That's what love does. Dallas Willard says to love someone is to will the good of another person. And to will the good of another person is not to just help them with money or help them with food or help them with love and friendship. 
To will their good is to help them understand Jesus through all of those things. Verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. It's more than washing feet. The reality then is this. John Ortberg in one of his books says, if two angels in heaven were given an assignment by God, one to go and rule over the most powerful nation on earth and the other to go sweep the streets so kids could play safely, neither one of those angels would complain about what they were asked to do. Why? Because the opportunity to serve God would be the reason they would do it. So as a Christ follower, the important thing isn't what God has us doing. What's important is that we're doing what God has us doing. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Now, I'm going to give you a little math equation to see how much you know your Bible. I know how much this church digs this, right? So that's why I love to do it. If you're visiting, that's a lie. Okay, so here we go. How many people are seated around that table that night? Do the quick math. How many disciples do we have? Twelve. How many Jesuses do we have? One. How many people do we have around the table? I've done my research. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't want to make a, I love this expression, I don't want to make a meal out of it, but I want you to taste it. If there are 13 people around the table, I've done the math. Read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll find out 12 people got their feet washed that night. How many people around the table? I want you, I want you to see a picture of the gospel. There Judas sits at the table as the betrayer with clean feet, and there the king of all the world, Jesus, sits at the table with dirty feet. You want a picture of what gospel love looks like? The clean feet of Judas and the dirty feet of Jesus are what you need to see here. When Jesus said, do what I've done, he lowered himself and went unclean so that you and I could be clean. It's a story of the gospel. It's a story of the kingdom. It's a story of our hope. God suffered to serve us. He put away his dignity. He put away his prestige. He put away who he was. And, and Jesus didn't just serve those who wanted served. He served those who needed served. He loved Judas that night. Judas walked out of that room to betray him with clean feet while Jesus remained dirty. Then he asked the question, do you understand what I've done? And that night they would have. So we know what the metaphor was. It's not just washing feet, it's what that means. And what is the reality is that Jesus did what God needed him to do. And what amazes me is he... He sent him out. Verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. I want to pause there for just a moment. For some of us, my fear is we have an automated Jesus. He's a robot. He had no real feelings. He just did what he was supposed to do. He always did the right thing. Never was a question. He always did this. He always said this. He was just, he just was, nothing tempted him. Not true. I want you to notice over the next few weeks as we read the accounts of these last 48 to 72 hours of Jesus' physical life, I want you to notice how many times Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us Jesus was troubled. This was not easy. He knows that what's about to be set in motion will change everything. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. You might remember, we talked about it last week. Part of the Passover meal was this paste that was created by bitter fruit and bitter herbs. And this would be this paste and they would dip the bread in it and they would taste it. It would remind them of the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt, the bitterness of their slavery. 
Jesus would take that bread and they believe into that paste and he would hand it to Judas that night and Judas would taste the bitterness of his choice. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. On my greatest night of self-preservation, I would have looked at Judas and I would have not have said, go and do what you're going to do. I would have said, please don't. Please don't. Judas, you don't have to do this. Judas, why would you do this to me? But Jesus never does that. One of the most amazing things about this text for me is that Jesus actually granted Judas the, the freedom to crucify him. If you meditate on nothing else this week, remember this moment that Judas said to Jesus, get me killed. Because if he hadn't, you and I would have suffered. But God suffers to serve us. Not just his dignity and not just the humility needed, but he actually would be taken that night. He would be tortured for roughly 18 hours. He would pay a physical, social, spiritual, and emotional price that no other human being has ever faced. He would go through all of this and he would die at the end of the day and he was the one who gave Judas permission to get it done. When he asks us the question, do you understand what I've done? That's why the answer is okay at that moment to say, no clue. Why on the night you should have cared for yourself, you told your betrayer to take care of business. And what was the result? Verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. That's a lot of uses of the word glorify. What does glory mean? I'm going to use a really abstract definition here in a moment. I want you to trust me with it. It may seem self-serving. That's not my intention. I want to show you what I mean in a moment. I asked a professor one time, I didn't understand glory. I'm still not sure I understand. I, I can taste it. I've never eaten it. But I know in the Old Testament that Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God's like, nah, I'd crush you. But I'm going to show you just a part of me, and it changed him. It altered him completely. Just that little bit. And so I was, we were in this class, Old Testament history, and my professor, Dr. Doty, said that glory is weight. It is substance. It's an overwhelming sense of the density of something. That God's glory is that he is God and I'm not. When I get that, it alters me. So if I take little Olivia up here, she's four years old, cute as a button. And I said to Olivia, I need you to carry my glory. She couldn't. Not because I'm awesome, because I'm not. But the substance, the weight, if I said, I need you to physically carry me, Olivia, from this stage out those back exit doors, but my feet or my, none of my body can ever touch the ground, she could not handle my substance, my weight. She couldn't, she couldn't handle the glory of my existence. Do you understand where I'm going with this? You may think, well, that's pretty self-serving, a four-year-old carrying a six-foot, 200-pound dude. Yeah, that's ridiculous she could carry it. When we say we want to see God's glory, God's like, it's cute. You don't even understand my holiness alone. The perfection of God would only reveal my imperfection. I haven't asked any other service this question. I did Thursday night, I guess. But have you ever seen someone so beautiful, it hurt? Yeah? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask a question. Feel free to respond. <laughs> I keep warning. I've got to warn the church. Have you ever seen someone, and I know like, if, you don't have to like, point at them, but if you see someone who just like, instantly you just had this like, physical, real reaction to like, wow. And part of it is, they are so beautiful. And what's the other side of that equation? 
I'm not. I've already seen someone just so stunningly beautiful. I'm like, oh man, I'm an ogre. See, the glory and holiness of God brings us back to a reality. I'm not that guy. And here's the beautiful part of it. God says, you can't handle my glory, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Jesus in the form of a human being, not a fake human, not a robot, a real guy, and he's going to introduce you to my glory by the way he loves you. He's going to let you taste it. It's not a meal, it's a taste. And you're going to experience my glory, and it's going to be enough that you can handle it. And in fact, instead of you having to carry Jesus, Jesus is going to carry you. And he can handle it. And what Jesus was saying that night was, God's about to do something that's not going to look very glorious. And for the next 18 hours, you're going to wonder if God's even real. And I'm going to be destroyed, but don't you think for a second God's glory is not starting right now. Isn't that a powerful moment? Just like, watch what's about to happen, because God's going to be in charge of every bit of this, even when it seems like he's not. So I want to conclude this morning by giving you three things about the glory of God that you and I can partner in, just like Jesus did. Jesus said, I came to do this for his glory, and he will show my glory through his glory. And that's the only way you and I are ever glorified is when it comes through God. First, there's the glory of obedience. The glory of obedience. And this is a hard one for us because we like to say, and people like to fight over this, even in Christianity, I'm saved by faith and nothing else. Not true. You are saved by a faith that serves the living God. Not a, not a God who serves you. But the glory is found in serving the living God. Even in our death, we serve him. Jesus said in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus said, Father, you asked me to do something, and I love you enough to do it. And I'm going to show your glory by my obedience. And you and I get to do that too. I hope it never becomes a cliche around here, because I plan to say it as long as I can be a part of this community. And that is this. We spend way too much time arguing with one another about what we should do or what we have to do. And I want to change the narrative. It's not what we have to do. It's what we get to do. We are privileged to get to serve God. We are privileged to get to sacrifice for the kingdom. We are privileged to get to call Jesus our Savior and our friend. We're privileged to call God our Father. We're privileged to have the Holy Spirit abiding in us and guiding us every day. He doesn't tell us we have to do anything. He offers us a chance to serve him, and it is our privilege to serve him. And you want God to be known? Serve him like he's God. And people will see it. Because Jesus used his own life as an example. Father, they know you because they've seen me. Jesus would say, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now where I am coming or going, you cannot come. And they're thinking, aw, they don't want to go where he's going. He's going to the cross. He's going to 18 hours of torture. He's going to a place that we should go and he's going instead of us and he's telling them, stand down and trust me. There's a glory of obedience and there's a glory found in love. Verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Any explanation needed? He says it three times. You want the glory of God to be shown? Do what he asks you to do because you get to. And love people around you. If you found the Apostle John living today and you tapped him on the shoulder and say, are you the John of the Gospels? And he would say, yes, I am. And you would say, you spent three plus years with this guy and you saw a vision of him before you died on the Isle of Patmos and wrote the Revelation. You wrote three letters to churches, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You have this great experience with him. What was he talking about? What's John going to tell you? 
love. It will only and always be about love. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And that's not him saying, hey, all the things God tried failed, and so we're going to start over with this love thing. No, he's actually saying when he says a new commandment, I'm told it's kind of a Greek idiom, and what it means is never going to go old. Never going to change. It's always going to work. It'll be new tomorrow. It'll be new three weeks from tomorrow. It'll be new 3,000 years from now if the Lord delays. Loving one another will be the new command that refreshes us and brings newness of life. There's a glory found in obedience and there's a glory found in love. And thirdly, there's a glory found in grace. This one is about Peter. Peter's been highlighted by John, not to goon him, but to show you something powerful. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Once again, Peter, just stop. Just listen. But Peter's like, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go and you can't go with me. And Peter's like, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. You will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. You think, "Uh uh-oh, glad I'm not Peter, right? He just got ripped by Jesus in front of everybody. But there's something significant that takes place here. You see, glory is not found in doing what we think is right. Glory is found in doing what God has asked of us. It's trusting God. Right now, we're in a cultural war with passages of scriptures, and people are wondering, well, maybe the scriptures just don't fit anymore. Be careful. Be careful of saying to God, you got old. You got out of time. You got out of sequence. I think we can trust God more than we can trust the trends in our culture, right? And so this whole period of grace is we're going to have moments where the world is going to kind of convince us that the scriptures are, well, I'm not sure. And then all of a sudden we're going to realize the truth and reality of the scripture will be proven when culture fails again and again and again and again and the lies are exposed. And instead of going, well, I disqualified myself, I want you to understand what Peter said. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and die because here's the truth. If Peter dies that night with Jesus, his death is futile. When Jesus died that night, it changed history. Jesus said to Peter, let me wash you. Let me do what I have to do before I call you to do what you have to do. And Peter is so impetuous. I can't wait. Jesus said, you need to wait. You need to trust me. Peter said, no, no, I'll die with you. And Jesus said, no, I won't let that happen. And second of all, you won't even stand with me. By the end of that 18 hours, Jesus will be alone. Does that mean Peter failed? No, it means Peter didn't understand the grace of Jesus. That he was willing to protect Peter from a death Peter was willing to die. And Jesus said, no, no, you'll deny me by the end of the morning and I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to bring you back in. When you learn to trust me, you'll understand the grace of obedience or the glory of obedience, the glory of love and the glory of grace. I want to close with this. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 is interesting because I want you to, this is a letter that Peter wrote to the persecuted church, to a group of Christians who were paying a desperate price to follow Jesus. Peter writes these words, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I'm here to tell you that if you read the scriptures, you'll find out these are the three things Peter did not do that night. But after the resurrection and after the glory of the cross and after understanding what Jesus did by washing his feet, Peter could then say in his maturity and his faith in Jesus, set your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, there are some in the room here this morning 
who have never experienced the glory of obedience to Christ, the glory of his love being shared through you because of him, and the glory of grace that is offered to everyone, even the greatest failure in this room. You've never trusted that. You've never let him wash your feet or be washed in the blood of the lamb. You saw a young lady give a fine testimony this morning as she said, I know I need to be right with God and I need to follow him. And she dedicated herself. She is reaching into the glory of obedience and the glory of love and experiencing the glory of grace. And that's an invitation, not from Christ Church of Orinogo. It's an invitation from Jesus himself. Come unto me, all who are weary, and you will find rest. In, in church? No, in Jesus. So this morning, if there is a person here who desires to make a decision to say, I will give myself to that man. I understand now. I don't understand at all, but I understand enough to know what he's offering me is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit. We'd encourage you while we sing or after we sing and after the morning's over, please go to one of these tables and people will be happy to pray with you and answer any questions you might have. But for the rest of us who have been disciples of Jesus, is the glory of obedience your song? Is the glory of loving one another, not to be known as kind and good, but to introduce them to a love that compels you to do that? And the glory of God's grace, is it your story? What song are you singing? What story are you telling? And who are you inviting into it? Jesus said, do you understand what I've done for you? Then you should go and do as I have done to you. And this would be the life that Jesus deserves from us. And this would be the life he empowers us to live. And this would be why we worship him. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.